Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses. And Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, The Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American Citizenship and Its Decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hansen today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. hillsdale.edu slash vdh. Hey there to the listeners of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Welcome to the weekend edition where we look at things in a little more depth usually and or the historical aspects of things. This week we're going to look at Japan and a discussion of the historic, some of the historical things in modern Japan. And then we'll turn to the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. But before that, I'd like to remind everybody that Victor is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He can be found at his website, victorhanson.com. That's victorhanson.com. And you can join to be a reader of the ultra material for $5 a month or $50 an annual subscription. Uh, Victor will come right back after a quick um, break for some messages and talk to you about Japan and Saudi Arabia. We'll be right back. Warmer, sunnier days are calling fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month when you use the promo code VICTOR50 
at factormeals.com slash victor50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month, head to factormeals.com slash victor50, that's V-I-C-T-O-R-5-0, and use the code VICTOR50, that's code VICTOR50, at factormeals.com slash VICTOR50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA employs brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit taxnetworkusa.com slash Victor, taxnetworkusa.com slash Victor. Welcome back. Victor, before we go into our topic today, I'd like to ask you what's at the top of your mind, because you're always fun with a few things that might be pressing since you're always on top of the news. Do you have anything that, right now? Uh, I do. And uh, I wrote an article about labor shortages. I mentioned all the reasons why, and we've talked about that with Jack and you, and I was interested also because of long COVID. I'm on week 12 and I'm wiped out, but I'm upbeat. It's going to defeat it. So the next time you talk to me, Sammy, it's going to say, Victor decided to say no mas, just like um, Duran, the fighter. No, I should take that back. He said no mas when he gave up. I mean, no mas when he's winning. Um, I was going to just detour, if I could, on the news, because I heard a really disturbing story today from in the New York Times. There was an interview with Miss Collins and uh, Brett Stevens, and um, they talked about the Democratic conundrum with Joe Biden which is self-explanatory given he's down in the civic poll to 29 points yeah. uh, approval rating. But then there's the Kamala Harris who's in the low 30s and one can plead cognitive disability that explains his inability to speak. And Kamala Harris, I don't know what she can do. I said, I think on the air once that she had a vocabulary of 500 words, but she just repeats herself. But the point is she turns off not that she turns off me or you or our audience. She turns off her Democratic uh, supporters who would find her lightweight and not able to defeat the nefarious uh, 
Emmanuel Goldstein, Donald Trump. So they're discussing people. They were discussing, and there was an article out there talking about Pete Buttigieg. And I thought, how strange is that? Because any fair uh, empirical analysis would say they're going to get wiped out in the midterms in November, and Biden is at 29% because of the agenda. No one agrees with them on inflation. Nobody agrees with them on gas prices. Nobody agrees with them on the border. Nobody agrees with them on crime. Nobody agrees with them on foreign policy. Those are the issues that everybody uh, overwhelmingly polled to be the most important. And it's not that they just don't agree with them. They're, they're destroying the country. People cannot drive. They can't find things on the shelf. They can't afford uh, shingles on the roof. They can't afford new tires. It's just so uh, exorbitant. And they don't believe that the inflation rate is 8.6. They believe it's 10 or 20. Or it is when they when they buy things. Yeah. We've used that term, the stuff of life. And they're furious and they're angry. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are forced multipliers of their disastrous agendas with their personalities and their disabilities. Okay. So what in a sane world would be the solution to that? If you don't want them, if you were a Democratic kingmaker or you're Mark Zuckerberg and you want to infuse another $419 million in your dark money to weigh the election or you're Jeffrey Katzenberg and, you know, Hollywood and you've got all the Hollywood, Hollywood grandee, who do you bet? On? And they're talking about Pete Buttigieg, other than the fact he's gay what has he ever done? He was mayor and a bad mayor of South Bend, Indiana. That's it. But more importantly, he was Department of Transportation Secretary. So what has happened on his tenure, his watch? Well, the airline industry is in shambles. The cancellations are at record levels. The prices are climbing to be unaffordable. Uh, when you get in a plane and you miss a connection, I can attest for that test to that on numerous occasions. You're not going to find another flight. They're going to be booked up. So did he address that? No, he did not address that. How about driving a car? If you're paying $6.70, $6.80 in California for gas and higher on the coast, or you're paying $7, which is uh, my little town of Salmon, California, it's about $7 for diesel fuel. Did he address that? Did it go down? No. No, in fact, anything he squeaked out has been that this is a necessary transition. How about the Port of L.A.? Maybe we could get some tampons and baby formula. And you fly over Los Angeles and you see that cargo ships are stacked like they're on a shelf all the way out to the horizon. He's been there a year and a half. Did he do anything there? Nope. And the trains that survive to, to supply and enter and leave the Port of Los Angeles is like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid, kid bank robbery. They're just, the doors are open and the stuff that was inside it is littered all over the tracks. Did he go out there? Even Gavin Newsom may put on his little working man's outfit and, and strolled around for about 20 minutes for a photo op. Did he do that? No. So what has he done? Well, he's lectured everybody how illiberal they are and how their interstate freeway system that Ike, uh, you know, modernized the country and allowed us to drive from one coast to the other. It was racist. 
that's a really good time to bring that up right now to demagogue that issue when you people can't even drive. And there's major thoroughfares in California, I-5, 101, 99, that are impassable due to traffic. They're dangerous. They're killing people every day. And he says, well, you know, they're racist. So we're going to do mass transit. We have old Stonehenge uh, mass transit bridges about 10 miles from here. Not one foot of track laid in 10 years. $15 billion spent. So what I'm getting at is this, that he is the least likely person to carry the Democratic banner and, and, and correct this freefall because he has the same agendas. He doesn't disagree with Joe Biden. In fact, he's more left. This is what's so strange that the hard left of a party, after brainwashing non-compos mentes Joe Biden and forcing him to be a functionary, a vessel of their radical agenda, and then when the radical agenda destroyed the country nearly and has alienated 70% of the country, they put their finger at Joe Biden and they say, you did it. Well, he didn't do it enough, according to them. And then they look at Kamala Harris and they said, you're not an articulate spokesman of the progressive cause. If we just had some. And so they look at Pete Buttigieg. But he has no record of accomplishment. He wants the agenda to even be further left. It's alienated people. And what does he talk about when he's different? He talks about issues that poll respectively 6%, 3%, 4%. And those, that triad is abortion. And you ask the American people, what's the most important issue in your life right now? About 5% say abortion. Uh, gun control is about 3 or 4%. 3 or 4%. And uh, climate change or radically restructuring the economy is about 2 or 3%. So he will not address inflation or gas prices or crime or uh, the lack of, lack of deterrence, foreign policy, critical, all those things he won't talk about because he has no answer because his answers only uh, pour fuel on the fire. Yeah. So this shows you, it's, if you're a conservative and you're listening to this, you should be happy because it shows you that the Democratic Party, like Taliban, have forgotten nothing and learned nothing. Yeah. And uh, they are going to... Press the pedal down further and further. I hope they nominate Pete Buttigieg. I hope that he <laughs> comes in, and I don't know how they're going to get. This will be one of the interesting political questions of our lifetime. How do you get rid of, if you're a big Democratic donor, or you're Nancy Pelosi on the way out, or Chuck Schumer, or you're AOC and you think on your way out, how do you get rid of them? And how do you get rid of Kamala Harris at the same time? Not without being called, yeah, not without being called a racist and uh, whatever, homophobe. He couldn't. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. And how do these people get in? So, I mean, mm -hmm. it's a hard call between the incompetent, empty-headed Gavin Newsom and Pete Buttigieg. But, my gosh. And then we, you know. It may uh, happen. He's in the, Yosemite is burning up and Gavin is in Montana at a Tony ranch with his state paid security forces at a state that he had declared so homophobic that if any Californian went to a conference there on state business, they wouldn't be reimbursed. Maybe Sounds they, why don't they, yeah. maybe they won't reimburse his security detail. You know, maybe yeah. he can say, you know what I'm here, but this, I'm so unhappy and this is so homophobic that you people are not going to get paid for coming. And so I'll write you a check. 
or you, I don't need you because I'm a he-man Gavin Newsom in Montana. But it's he so sounds like the perfect candidate for Democratic presidential. Yeah. <laughs> He's the Marie Antoinette. Yeah, yeah, he sure he is. is. Okay, right. that was what, that was my on my yeah. chest. Yeah, great. So let's um, turn to Japan. And I wanted to start with one of their uh, writers, literary greats, uh, Junichiro Tanizaki. And he wrote an essay called In Praise of Shadows. And it's basically a challenge to Western enlightenment by the non-Western traditions in Japan and their general sense of beauty as well. So it's a sort of intellectual argument. It's very short. It's just an essay. So anybody who wants to read it, there's some beautiful translations. Again, it's called In Praise of Shadows. And it's interesting for even us Westerners because he is talking about um, light and shadows as, you know, the light is how the West pursues truth through science and sort of overt methods. And then shadows um, represent really sort of natural things that maybe are mysterious or require intuition and that sort of thing that um, are part of the Japanese tradition. And at one point he comes to tell us this, he says, but what is the difference in in this taste, right? In my opinion, it is this. We Orientals tend to seek our satisfactions in whatever surroundings we happen to find ourselves, to content ourselves with things as they are. And so darkness causes us no discontent. We resign ourselves to it as inevitable. If light is scarce, then light is scarce. We will immerse ourselves in the darkness and there discover its own particular beauty. But the progressive Westerner is determined always to better his lot from candle to oil lamp, oil lamp to gaslight, gaslight to electric light. His quest for a brighter light never ceases. He spares no pains to eradicate even the minutest shadow. And with that quote, I was wondering, Victor, what are your reflections? I I didn't know you were going to bring that up. I ran across that. Yeah. Tanizaka when I was writing my World War II book. I think that was written. 33. 32, 33. Yeah, it was right right in the turmoil in the period right after the destruction of democracy. Yeah. And this reassertion of sort of a bonsai uh, radical Zen Buddhist culture in Japan as its national nationalist religion, a nationalist uh, authoritarian. And it was basically trying to square the circle of how you uh, preserve traditional Japanese culture at a time when you've sent a third of a million people over to Germany and France and Great Britain for 50 years by that time, started in 1880, uh, to learn everything from aeronautical to nautical engineering, and you were modernizing rapidly the Japanese and industrializing and urbanizing the Japanese countryside. How do you... uh, Square that with haiku and um, traditional Japanese bonsai and painting and all of these traditional arts and sort of contrarian to modern progress uh, culture. And so it's pretty interesting, but... um, they, yeah, he, had, he, he has <laughs> they, a famous. They square the circle by 19, yeah. 
38, 39. To square that circle is a famous passage on the Japanese outhouse, which obviously is disconnected from the house and is all on its own and is a real outhouse as we used to know it. And he talks about how wonderful wow. it is to be out there without light in this outhouse. I would so that's one of the famous passages. I, I could disagree because I grew up on a farm whose last outhouse uh, was destroyed by me in 1985. Uh, we had an outhouse on the north side, 120 acres on the north side of the road, and an outhouse on the uh, south side. And I used to get bags of lime and throw it in there because it stunk so bad. And then when you went in there, you never knew when a black widow or a wasp was going to come. And in the summer, it was 110. Yeah. And you know, it was just a bad deal. It was unhealthy and there were flies. So I was glad. So we got so sick of it. Finally, we built a, a modern bathroom. Uh, once we started packing our own fruit, we had workers here. And I still have the modern bathroom. I remodeled, I think, twice. But mm -hmm. I don't like outhouses. And <laughs> the problem when I looked at that book is that they did reconcile it and you can see popular Hollywood World War II movies sort of picked it up. The Great Escape or Bridge on the River, excuse me, Bridge on the River Kwai, not the Great Escape, but Bridge on the River Kwai when the commandant is somebody who's uh, militaristic and harsh and, and has no problem with violence, but yet he's sensitive to poetry and art and things like that. And almost every World War II movie about a prisoner of war camp, they try to our letters uh, from Iwo Jima Clinics with all of these movies now are trying to go uh, capture that disconnect that how could a culture that was so refined culturally, artistically, literary, in literary fashion, poetical, also be so authoritarian and uh, institutionalize the use of violence well before the Japanese military government. Just as a sidelight, should remember that of the major six belligerents in World War II, in terms of the number of people lost, civilian and soldiers, and the number of people killed, the Japanese military nation was the most lethal of any, more lethal than Germany. They lost about three and a half million people, and they're responsible for probably killing over 15 million people. Yeah. Uh, maybe 20 million people. Mm. Or maybe more if you count China, that long occupation prior to World War II in China, and then the three to four million that were wiped out in Asia, Southeast Asia, and places like Hong Kong and the Pacific Island, and then probably somewhere between four, 400,000 and 500,000 Australians, British, Indian, and American soldiers. Yeah. Well, I think he's singing the praises of cultural forms that were extant way before in the samurai culture, um, the shogunates, and even before, because he does talk about no theater as well. Um, so he's he's singing the praises of culture that's born in um authoritarian systems. Yeah. So that's kind of an interesting thing. They, did, that, they, I, they, they were traumatized. They lost 300, I mean, 3 million people. I think it was two and a half million soldiers. And then, but not nearly as much as Germany. Germany probably lost five to seven. Germany probably killed 20 million people. Yeah. So what I'm getting at is that for all of the talk about the fire raids, which were horrific, on Kobe and Yokohama and Tokyo, this was a nation that went to war and killed 
for every Japanese soldier or civilian that was lost, they killed about um, seven to eight innocents. And the vast majority, 90% of the people they killed were not in uniform. Yeah. And so that, you know, and, and that is something to keep in mind. I got introduced to Japanese culture very early. My first cousin, Marn, she was my aunt and my mother were very prominent in this rural community in the 1930s and 40s when there, we have a lot of Japanese American farmers. This was one place where people who migrated in the 19th, late 19th, early 20th century came here to farm. And during the World War II with the relocation, I shouldn't say that, the deportation and places like Manzanar, the camps, there were efforts to make sure that those farms were not confiscated by opportunistic conglomerates and my mother and her sister were very idealistic, and my grandfather was. And the Selma Enterprise was very activist. A guy named Lil Pratt was kind of a hero. Mm-hmm. Put, and who were the villains? Remember the villains. They were all of our liberal icons. They were Attorney General Earl Warren. They were FDR that signed the order. And they were C.K. McClatchy, the first or second, and the Fresno, Modesto, Sacramento Beats that were demagogue the issue. But my point is that when I came of age, we had all, of, uh, I think two of our neighbors were Japanese American and then three or four people in the general area were Japanese American. And my grandfather would lecture me about the way that they farmed Thompson seedless grapes or orchards. They had kind of a, it, I guess it's the same spirit. They had kind of a, um, and you know, in nearby communities, a lot of these successful packing houses were Japanese. They were very, they were like the Armenian American community, very, very educated, very, very hardworking, very, very disciplined, very, very affluent, very, very successful. But my point is, when you looked at a Japanese American vineyard, it was immaculate, immaculate. When you went over to their homes, it was very stunning because they did not build the the huge, big, ostentatious home, as you see sometimes now with the Sikh community or earlier with the Armenian community. They had very modest homes with bonsai, pruned trees, and gardens. Uh, kind of, you know, it was it was kind of like a Japanese gar- tea garden. And then they had uh, barns and sheds that were often bigger than their home. In other words, their capital was put into uh, agriculture. They had beautiful machines. I, I'm saying they, I mean, not everybody, but they were wonderful and very successful farmers from the cultivation side. Yeah. And, and they had all of these appurtenances all around their homes and machines, and they were very mechanical. And then their homes were very modest, but they were very uh, tastefully uh, landscape and tended to. And then the vineyards, of course, were immaculate. And my grandfather used to get me in the pickup and said, let's go take a look, Mr. Victor, and let's go look at one of the Japanese farms. And he'd drive and go, my God, look at that farm. My God, you could take a vacuum cleaner down there and you wouldn't pick up any dirt. <laughs> and he'd go by the house and look at them. They've got those trees. They're just beautiful. He was very impressed. He, 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 uh, but that's how, I, and I went to school a lot of Japanese American kids and still keep in touch with them. Yeah, and that's sort of how it is. Could I, yeah. could we step back a little bit and yeah. look at Japanese fascism and how mm-hmm. it was different from the fascism in Germany or in even in Italy? Yes. So yeah. well, yeah. and remember that uh, the fascist party in. Um, the fascist party in Italy and 
was not, I mean, they gave lip service to the Pope and Roman Catholic, but fascism said it was modernistic. It was into the 20th century modernism, even the architecture or the emphasis by Mussolini on engineering and industrialization. And it was a nationalist religion, but in some ways, while he wasn't stupid enough to cross the Catholic Church, it was sort of a secularism. Hitler, who didn't like Christianity in general and Catholicism in particular, he hated Christianity as much as, not as much, but he hated as well as Judaism. But his, his he created a, I guess you'd call it a pseudo-religion of this sort of crackpot idea of a pre-Western Germania right out of Tacitus's uh, Germania that was never polluted uh, by the riffraff in the Roman Empire that were south of the Danube and the Rhine, that they couldn't dare come on, you know, domesticate, assimilate, integrate, intermarry these strapping six-foot blonde warriors. This is the, I'm talking from the Romantic point, but a lot of German eugenicists wrote about this. And then the Norse gods came back into style. I think Goring used to kind of run around with all kinds of contraptions, uh, you know, deer horns on his head and stuff like this. And Wagner opera, et cetera, et cetera, Valkyrie, all that was there now. But Japan was sort of similar, but they were Zen Buddhist, Shinto Buddhism. It was a religious, it, it didn't deviate nearly as much from traditional Japanese religion. And fascism was sort of an idea that, it was it was a combination in Japan of a um, of a devotion to modernism, and Japan was going to become entirely Western very quickly. But it was also uh, infused with Bushido and radical Zen Shinto Buddhism, and so there was a warrior cult that was religious in nature. So the emperor was sort of a divine entity in a way that Hitler wasn't even. And and there was talk about, you know, reincarnate. All of the traditional elements of Buddhism were superimposed on fascism in a way that wasn't true in Italy and uh, Germany. And, you know, it was it, it, it's one of it, it's so similar to China. I think people have missed that parallel because it's just about the same time period. If you look at uh, Jin Xiaoping when he went and visited the United States after 1969 and the whole opening with Nixon. And that was uh, 50 years ago, right? The start of the, of the Chinese modernization. And you look at uh, 1880 to 1940, 1890, and, you know, it's only 50 years, 50, 60 years, same thing. And there was a, you know, by 1940, 41, they had formalized the greater, um, East Asia co-prosperity sphere, which is sort of a mercantile, superimposed, uh, forced, uh, subservient system on its neighbors in the way that Japan is doing with the Belt and Road. I mean, China is doing with the Belt and Road. Yeah. Very similar. And most similar and most, uh, I think, scariest is that Japan was, like China, so confident, even arrogant, that it had no problem with emulation. It had enough self-confidence, so it would go. It started off with, uh, we're going to copy um, British naval architecture. So they sent everybody to learn because they just found out who's the best Navy in the world. The British have it. And by 19, you know, 1905, 1906, they blasted the Russian Navy that have a head start right out of the water in the Russo-Japanese War. And by 
One, they were helping the Allies patrol the Mediterranean. And by 1941, lo and behold, who had the best destroyers in the world? The Japanese. Who had the best torpedoes? The Japanese. Who had the best carriers, at least the most numerous? It was the Japanese. And so that's where we, that's, that was kind of scary. And then who taught them uh, to reorganize and reform their army? It was the French. And why the French? Because the French had produced Napoleon and Napoleon and the Napoleonic tradition was still in, uh, it was in still in vogue until the Franco-Prussian War and World War One, And then as they started to, to emulate the uh, the French, then the rise of German militarism just said, you know what, it's time to switch. So we're not going to build the Japanese army upon French principles. We're going to do it on Germanic. They won the 1871 war. They won. They were pretty good in World War One. They took on the world, and that's whom we're going to emulate. So yeah. they were very successful industrializing the country, innovating the country. We had such an arrogant attitude that they, you know, that they produce pinwheels and, and, you know, candy bar wrappers or just junk that when the war started out, we had no idea of their successful mortars they produced and um, the quality of the Mitsubishi Zero fighter or uh, the Kaga and the Akagi. So recently I was at a museum in Paso Robles uh, Air Museum, and I noticed that often for the World War II, you know, um, armor and ammunition, or at least at the beginning in the 1940s and 41, et cetera, they they kept saying um, this was, you know, either it was a Japanese you know, um, mortar, or it was an American mortar, and they were comparing it to the Japanese mortar. And it sounded like that the Japanese in the early, you know, 39, 40, 41 had, had better armaments in some cases than the United States even. And so that was quite kind of interesting. They, they were strange. They did and they didn't. In term, what they were really behind, and they found that out when they were fighting on the Mongolian border with Admiral Zuko, I mean, General Zukov, that they were deficient in armor and uh, and heavy artillery. And they were, uh, and, and close air support. So they didn't do well against the Russians. And they never mm. really, but in other areas, and one of them, you mentioned that infantry mortar, that was a deadly... Um, I think it was called, hold on, Type 97 infantry mortar or type, it was a 90 millimeter mortar and it had this little box on it. I mean, a little square plate where you could, you know, you hold it put, and uh, it was deadly. It was a huge yeah. 90 millimeter. This is a time when we were doing 40 or 60 and it was deadly. And it was what uh, I think killed my namesake on Okinawa. He died of shrapnel wounds as well as bullet wounds, but it was from, I think the lethal wounds, as I was told, was from a Japanese mortar. Wow. Uh, May, May 19th on Sugarloaf uh, Mountain. So they were very, I mean, gosh, they, they got up to, <laughs> you know, 90 millimeters, 150 millimeters. They made it really big and they were deadly. And you can read uh, E.B. Sledge on the old breed and he talks about the terror of a Japanese, very simple, very simple. I can remember my father, when he landed in Japan, somebody came up to him with a radio and it was like a 
one transit yeah, it wasn't there before transistor one tube radio and he thought it was a piece of junk and then they gave it to the crew and they thought wow this thing is simple it gets better um, clarity and it's you can fix it very easily and they were highly impressed so yeah. in some areas um, the problem with Japan was that you know it it had about 75 million people and it took on the United States at that time with you know 170 million that took on the soviet union with 220 million took on britain with 60 million and its gdp was just a fraction of the allies gdp so it was doomed once it's it started once it started so that brings me to my other question i i haven't heard you ever give a a general not a general but an assessment of the japanese uh, strategy decisions or their commanders. And I was wondering if you could talk to us about some of the best strategy decisions they made and their best commanders. In World War II? In World War II. Yeah, well, the worst was uh, Admiral Yamamoto's decision to attack Pearl Harbor. Remember, we have a um, we have myth, of, and I've talked about that, I think, before. I wrote about it in Second World War. We have created him into a mythical character because he was such a fine person, personally. But Yamamoto was the one who insisted on the Pearl Harbor attack. We think that he was, you know, he said, well, I can't guarantee victory. I can run wild for six months and then after the sleeping dragon, all that crap. But even if he did say that, he, uh, what he meant was, I want my way. And if you don't get my way, uh, I'm going to quit. And he, he was offered to resign. And my way is I want a sneak attack on Pearl Harbor. And he did that because the British had done it the year before very successfully against the Italians. And he, in the Pacific, we, when the war broke out, uh, we only had the Hornet, uh, the Lexington and Saratoga and the Enterprise. And when the Wasp wasn't here, so we had only four carriers in the Pacific fleet. They had about seven. No, they had about eight, eight or nine maybe 10. So my point is that although we had a bigger Navy, ours was dispersed all over the world. We had another Navy that was being built on the Carl Vinson Axe, but in process, in the, in progress. But my point is that he, uh, he really pushed for World War II. And there were a lot of people, believe it or not, in the Japanese cabinet that, and, and in government that didn't want to do it because they made some really good arguments against Yamamoto. And one of them was... Um, well, wait a minute. We have a non-aggression uh, pact with Russia, and uh, we uh, have we're not at war with Britain, and we're not at war with the United States. And guess what? It looks to us like Britain's going to lose the war. So there's Singapore that we can take because they thought this is during the Battle of Britain. And Singapore and Hong Kong, which they did take, and Hong Kong. But it looks like all we have to do is just sort of tiptoe around the, the, the Pacific in 1940 to 41 because there is no such thing called France anymore. It's Vichy France, and they, they're weak. And we'll just tell them we're going to take Southeast Asia, and they did. And then they thought, you know what? We've taken Southeast Asia. The Dutch East Indies are ours, too. We'll just take the shell uh, oil fields because there's no longer an independent Netherlands. It was conquered. And so that was a pretty good strategy. Uh, but they, they blew it because all they had to do was not attack Wake Island and not attack the Philippines. 
and maybe not attack Singapore so quickly. And it would have fallen, who knows? But they were so greedy that they, they got themselves into a war with Britain and the United States. And then they had were wise enough because they had been double-crossed, remember, by the Germans. They were fighting Zukov in Mongolia. At that moment, Hitler stabbed them in the back and signed a private deal, the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop on August 23rd, 1939. And all of a sudden, Japan said, what did you do? You've, you've unleashed the Russians against us in full force. They don't have a, a Western border, a border to worry about. So then the following year in 41, the Japanese did the same thing with the Germans. They didn't tell them. They signed a non-aggression pact with the Russians. And all of a sudden, Hitler discovered, he, he thought it was didn't matter at the beginning. He was so greedy. He thought he would go in, take Russia, and the Japanese, he said, would be like vultures, and they would take the carcasses. But later, and not much later, he needed them, and the Japanese said, nope. We're not going to invade um, uh, Eastern Russia. And Stalin had access to those communications and, and transferred a quarter million soldiers and saved uh, Moscow in yeah. early December. So they were they had a, a very strange situation that gave them a lot of opportunities in World War II had they just played their cards right. All they had to do was be a fascist member and remain neutral and expropriate French and Dutch properties that were very rich in minerals and oil. And without sort of due to us, what they did to the Russians have a neutrality pact. And I don't think the United States would have gone to war against Japan in World War II. Had we gone to war without Pearl Harbor, had they not attacked, I think we would have concentrated mostly on Europe. And you think Japan would have had an empire then, because obviously that's what they were playing for. Yeah. All they had to do was... Take, you know, they could have, after the war was over, they could have negotiated a deal with the, the Dutch and French and got something in return for giving something back. And then almost by 1946, they were in the driver's seat because they were the only uh, non-communist, you know, China was communist by 40, coming, it was in the Civil War by 49, and then North Korea, and we needed Japan. And so by 1950, I, I'm trying to be very blunt and not too specific, but I could be offer more detail. But in 1950, the U.S. policy, uh, you could say by July, late July 1950, was, oh, no more de-fascistic uh, efforts, no more uh, cleansing of Japanese military criminals. Japan... Whether you like it or not, it has a new constitution, and MacArthur is still there, and he's proconsul, and we need it. We need it because we need a base to supply Korea and save South Korea. So we stopped all pressures on Japan, which brings us probably to what you mentioned, uh, the recent assassination of Abe and why people um, hated him both in Japan and also around the world. Yeah, could we could we take a break and then yeah. come right back to talk about Shinzo Abe? Yes. We'll be right back. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected 
for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. And yeah, Victor, so we I was curious about your reflections on Shinzo Abe. I mean, the papers seem to be a little bit torn and the left not so admiring of him and the right, of course, a little bit more so. So what is the reason for that? Well, he was the first. First of all, he uh, was the longest prime minister in Japanese history, I think nine years and multiple terms. Nobody had ever done that before. So whatever one thought of him, he had the ability to read the populace. And he was very popular. And he he had a, a weird ancestry. His father, his grandfather, excuse me, had been a member of the, I think he was uh, the secretary of Japanese munitions during World War II and was charged with war crimes, maybe unfairly or not, but then became sort of a left of center politician. His father was very prominent, but my point is that he was a modern reformer, but he had a familial ancestral family reputation for being a nationalist. And so he very uh, cagely, I should say, examined the scene and said to himself in the 21st century, the problem the West is going to have is not with us and reoccurring or recrescent, um, recrescent, recrescent um, Japanese militarism. It's with China. And when you look around the world, and in this part of the world especially, what, where, who is going to be the buttress against China? Expansionism. It's going to be Australia, but they only have, what, 30 million or so people? And it's South Korea, but they've got a problem with North Korea. It's the Philippines where they're kind of dysfunctional. There's nobody else. Uh, Taiwan, well, you know, Taiwan will be the first country to fall. So he stepped forward uh, during the Bush era, and he said, you know, the time has come um, 70 years after World War II, 65 to 70 years after, we're we're going to be – more than just self-defensive. We're going to have a military arm that is capable of projecting force in the region and checking Chinese power. And this was sort of music to the ears of American diplomats who were bogged down in Iraq and Afghanistan. And and we were having all sorts of economic problems. 
And, so, and then he sort of gave a little bit of lift to the Japanese economy. He sort of deregulated a little bit. And he said to the world, he said some crazy things, I mean, about comfort women in Korea and some of the behaviors in Manchuria uh, and the puppet states that uh, Japan had colonized in China in the early 1930s. Stupid in the sense they were historically inaccurate. But he did say that the time has come where Japan has to resume its rightful role in the family of, of very powerful nations. And we're pro-Western and we can help you check China and we can help you. And so he started to um, remilitarize the Japanese Navy. And um, that was something that people, you know, because the Japanese remember about World War Two. You could argue that uh, the Japanese army was substandard in comparison to Western army. There was nothing like the Third Army or Zhukov's uh, army or Montgomery's, nothing in Japan like that. And you could argue uh, that the Japanese Air Force as a strategic component didn't exist. I know it could bomb areas in China, but there was nothing like the B-17 or B-29 or Lancaster campaigns, or even the German ability to do the, the blitz. But uh, when you look at the Japanese Navy, it was absolutely at a level that was comparable and, and early in the war superior to Western navies. And, and so when he started to say, we're going to emphasize the Navy, people kind of got shivers up their back, especially when he started to, um, what's the word, uh, re rename some of the, um, so I think when you see, you know, these, I'm trying to recall this memory, when you see maneuvers to send China a message, you see the Carl Vinson and the HMS uh, Queen Elizabeth but you see the Kaga, you know, the new carrier is very impressive, but it's the Kaga, K-A-G-A, one of the chief and most famous carriers in the 20s and 30s that spearheaded the attack at Pearl Harbor. <laughs> so naming that is pretty, you know what I mean? It would be sort yeah. of like Germany says, well, we're going to have a Navy and help NATO out. And the first carrier is going to be called the Bismarck <laughs> <laughs> or the Prince Eugen or, you know, the Shinehorn, something like that. It would sort of, or they would call, you know, we're going to have a NATO division. It's going to be called the Das Reich or the Hermann Göring, not the Hermann Göring, <laughs> but the Das Reich division. And and that would send a message. But the the Kaga uh, is a very yeah. modern, um, impressive, impressive, and it sends a message. And the problem Japan is having that Abi had was that we were trying to. We like this idea, but in Bush's later second term and then during Obama, no comment. And during Trump, the idea was, OK, let's get Australia, let's get the Philippines, let's get Taiwan, let's get Japan and let's get South Korea on the same page. And the Australians, of course, liked this because even though they had suffered from Japan in World War II. They didn't see a, a present threat, but they saw a lot of advantage in Japanese wealth and technology and population. Yes. And so did uh, Taiwan, right. believe it or not, but not South Korea for historical reasons, the comfort women and the colonization of South Korea and control of it by uh, Japan from the early 1900s. And so there was such bitterness that it was, and we were trying to say, hey, you guys stop fighting. 
we're all on the same team. And they'd say, no, we're not on the same team. Abi won't admit what Japan did. And we'd say, well, you know, we lost a lot of people and we fought them too. And we've forgiven them. And they said, well, they haven't changed. That was a big difference. Yeah. And so that really hurt that coalition. It's less, and Abi was, he kind of backed down on certain issues. He apologized, but it, he's a, so when the left looks at him, the worldwide global left looks at him, they have a negative assessment. They were not reluctant to, I thought, no sooner was he uh, killed than they went out and started trashing him, right wing nationalists, semi fascist. He wasn't. He was a, yeah. he came to terms with reality. And the reality is whether you like Japan or not that it is a very large country. It is one of the most sophisticated countries in the world. It has, I think, after the United States and China, it's got the third largest economy in the world. And it's the source of some of the best products that have improved life worldwide. I mean, when I was growing up, my father said to me, you're not going to buy a Japanese car. (laughs) And when he died, I went out and bought Hondas and I've been buying Hondas ever since. And uh, they're wonderful cars. What I read about Abe was that he was he felt that Japan had apologized enough for its his their World War Two crimes. And so he was in his mind. I think he was a new age in Japan. So his attitude was, how long are we going to apologize and pay psychological penance and finance? He they paid financial yeah. reparations. It wasn't enough, probably, given the damage they they've done. But he said, how long is this going to go on while China is the beneficiary of this? And can't we just settle and uh, and make some kind of common front? Um, yeah. Yeah. And you were talking about the economy. So I thought my last interest is what are your reflections on the state corporate model of business that the Japanese have been so successful in Mitsubishi, Honda, Toyota? Well, I mean, they were the model that China emulated. They were the state private consortia where they were given I guess, concessions by the Japanese government, monopolies, Sony, Toyota, Honda, you know, all of them, Mitsubishi. And then they were export powerhouses where they brought in all of this foreign exchange and helped the Japanese uh, raise the standard. It was very successful. But the problem was that when you have an economy based on that marriage, and remember, this was what was scaring the United States in the 1980s and late 70s, when we were in this period of decline before Reagan. And uh, our economy was not open enough. And we didn't, we were running out of oil and oil was high priced. We were coming out of Vietnam. It was just a bad time. And everybody looked at, you know, the Japanese came in and they were buying huge, um, huge companies in Hollywood. They were buying golf courses. They were flush with money. Hollywood was making these movies about you have to be scared of the Japanese. They're going, and then there was, I think there was a, I don't know if it was Harper's or Atlantic. There's a, there was a article there back. And it was basically Paul Kennedy and others had made the argument because they thought we were spending too much on defense and subsidizing their um, non-defense economies. They had no military spending to speak of. 
and they were taking us to the cleaner. So they were saying, who won World War II? Britain is a mess. The United States is a mess. Russia is a mess. We're all armed to the teeth. And guess what? Japan and Germany are going to take over. So there was this paranoia. And uh, I don't think it, what I'm trying to get at in a very clumsy way is that we go through these periods of paranoia where we think that a state uh, private concession marriage, a fusion is a, is a superior model. And we, we did it with a job. We said, oh, my God, the Japanese are going to take over the world. And then they didn't. And they had 20 years of, uh, you know, negative growth or static growth and deflation that was paralyzing. And it's an huge internal debt. And then we said, oh, my gosh, the EU, look at the, the euro. And by 2006, you know, it was up to $1.30, $1.40. This is the way of the future. They don't have a, a defense budget. They have a social contract. And the government helps guide industrial policy. They don't have these mavericks. They don't have these, these buccaneers. This is the model. And then it faded. And now the euro is what, almost one to one. And we have beat in annual growth and unemployment and almost every barometer of economic activity. We have beat the EU and the average American is so much. The average American is more uh, prosperous, and especially when you go beyond um, average income and you look at more relevant but less quoted statistics, square foot per family of living space. A number of TVs, how many cars, size of car, disposable, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so then we went into, we, after going from Japan's going to destroy us and then EU is going to destroy us. Now it's China's going to destroy us. But the common denominator is that the left is always telling us these, these alternate paradigms of state capitalism are more important and more effective and should be emulated by us. Because they're dominating us. They're taking us the cleaners. But you take a deep breath. And when you look at the statistics from 2000 to the present, it doesn't bear that out. Mm-hmm. When you let people think and act and prosper on their own, you have thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, hundreds of millions of minds. And they're all busy, you know, sort of like a hive but they're not being told what to do. So I'm not a big fan of Jeff Bezos, but my God, whoever dreamed up the idea that you could be an Amazon Prime member out in the middle of nowhere and you know you want some quercetin and all of a sudden the thing shows up at your door the next day and he can make a profit when we're told that deliveries were a thing of the past in the 1950s. Or you look at Bill Gates. I use Microsoft. I use it today. And I don't do Twitter, but Twitter and all these things that are catching on worldwide are the Hollywood is it's in decline, but still it, it, it's culture is all over the world. And so there's a lot of American innovation and capital. And it's based on the idea that the left has not taken control and regimented everybody. And when they do that, we're going to be in big trouble. So don't listen to them when they tell you that Japan's model is Robert Reich was a big avatar of this. Look at Japan. Look at the EU. Look at China. And before, by the way, before Japan, you know what they told us? We will bury you. Nikita's, uh, the Russian economy is so much better than ours and their planes are better than ours. 
and the Soviet Union is going to bury it. So each time there's a status model. And they said in the 30s, everybody said, we went through the Depression and we suffered and they had a liquid monetary policy and they were expansionist currency, true, and public works and state-run industries and Look at Nazi Germany and look at fascist Mussolini. And, and when I say they, I'm talking about American liberals. You can find all sorts of left-wing Americans, not just the Ezra Pound types, that were praising fascism because of the state control. And there's no accident of, of industry. And it's no accident that, you know, the National Socialist Party in Germany, it wasn't just the Nationalist Party or the National Fascist Party. It was the National Socialist Party. And Hitler was a socialist as well. Yeah. So, and so I, I think we should all just take a deep breath and say, you know what? As long as you allow somebody in the United States to have an idea and you have a meritocratic system and you allow that person to profit and you give people opportunity, whether they're authors or professors or scientists or doctors, you will always be more creative and productive than the status model. But you copy that. And you destroy merit, like we saw this week in the L.A. school system, or you put commissars like these diversity, equity, inclusion administrators who don't produce anything, but they restrict and retard and suppress the pursuit of knowledge with their credos, or you um, you put something like the Biden uh, EPA and you give it legislative, judicial, and executive power, then you're going to destroy what we create. And we're not we're going to be like those systems. But yeah. uh, I don't know what it is about the left. It's so strange. I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. You have these leftists and they go to Davos. They go to Sun Valley. They they park these uh, huge Gulf streams next to each other to show off. Mark Zuckerberg's got this huge home in Hawaii. The Obamas have a Oahu mansion, a Colorama mansion, a Martha's Vineyard mansion. They're all wealthy, and they've all done it because they've been allowed to prosper as individuals and to take, you know, business agendas and turn them into cash. And yet, once they get up there in the attic, they just want to close the door on everybody else. I don't understand it. Or they yeah. want to brag on these systems that they never want to live under. You know, what would Barack Obama do if he was in Japan or the Europe right now? You think an African-American would ever be chancellor of Germany or prime minister of Japan? I'm not talking about our enemies. I'm talking about our friends. Do you think that a Japanese company would pay Barack Obama like Netflix or Spotify to come up with ideas? I don't think so. No. No. So, no. I mean, our, I don't think Bill Gates could have ever uh, emerged out of Switzerland. I mean, they have some of these people in fashion in Italy and France and, and merchandising in Sweden, but they're very rare. Yeah. Well, just to finish up with Japan, I would like to just, I mean, I guess you would call, I don't want to, I'm not apologize for Tanizaki, but to um, sort of defend him in the sense that while he was critiquing the Western tradition and praising the traditional Japanese lifestyle, he does at the very end say, I do appreciate everything that the modern way of life has brought to us and it will probably continue, but maybe there'd just be one little corner where this traditional, he almost sounded like he was talking about 
museum. Yeah, but yeah, that's so that's uh, so that's where he ended. He wasn't wholesale. There's a balance. There's a balance. Um, I'll just end if I could for a minute. I think I bored the listeners, but since January, I'm taking this 150 year old house and redoing it. But what's fascinating is when you go up in the attic or you take out a portion of the wall or you go under the house, you can see that my mother, her father, his father, his mother did that about every 40 years. So you see no wiring and then you see like primitive, like spool wire. And then you see the great advance in knob and tube wiring. And then you see fixed 50 Romex. And that's true of the plumbing and everything. But the point I'm making is, especially in the agrarian tradition, there was this dichotomy that was not antithetical. They wanted to preserve something that didn't make economic sense because any one of those generations, as far as cost to benefit, they could have, my grandfather would have been, the amount of money he spent to keep that 100-year-old, he should have just bulldozed it down and built a ranch-style 1,800-square-foot, you know, 1950s stucco house. But he didn't do it. A lot of, and millions of farmers don't do that. They keep it in the family and they keep doing it. But they do it with the modern technology and modern science and their modernness. They're not, you know, we have a, we're not going to dare take away that outhouse. No, they put in a huge sewer system or they or you know what we're this was such antiquated romantic wiring we're going to keep that no or we're going to have this outhouse and you know my great grandfather built that outhouse and we're going to preserve it just like they don't do that no so and that's what i like about this country that in certain nooks and crannies and aspects people do things that are not entirely uh, economically rational but not to the point that they venture into the realm of nostalgia and quackery or, you know, anti-industrialism. They're modern, but they use modernism, I think, for good purposes often. I can see that, you know, when my grandfather, when he was farming, he once told me I should have bulldozed this entire home. I mean, a farm on the south side of the road and made it perfectly level because then it would have been much more economic. But he kept all these hills and ponds and he had... It was uh, uneconomical, but it was beautiful. And he had every uh, alleyway, you know, lined with trees. And, and uh, you, they were four, four acres here, three acres there. And he had all these different varieties. And you can see this pond that was an artesian pond. It was beautiful. It was something out of Hobbitville, Hobbiton. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when he died and then we tried to, we kept it, but it was very hard to do. Yeah. And uh, the person who bought it just leveled it. I mean, they had they had, they just looked at this and they said, "This is not going to work." <laughs> so it's yeah. Yeah, it's a fine line, but I think Americans do a pretty good job. And you can see that with guys that restore cars or they drive them, or you know, you go somewhere and you'll see somebody with a twenty-year-old car, but it's very well maintained. And uh, are you, I was driving the other day and I saw an old, old home and I thought, wow, that is beautiful. And as I, I turned my neck as I went by and they had a whole solar farm right behind it. Yeah. It yeah a hundred panel. That sort of reminds me of Tanizaki's ending because he does sound sort of utilitarian, but at the same time with a sense of beauty about things. And he kind of ends there. So it's very I think what you're trying to, what to you're tell me, about. Sammy, is that we could air. Um, a little bit more on the Japanese reverence for ancestry and con- continuity and a little less 
blow, <laughs> blow things up and start over each generation and forget the people were here. Yeah, I, I think that's. I mean, they have the burdens of memories that we don't know, but don't really share. But the biggest thing that's driving me crazy right now is I feel like I'm a stranger in a strange land in the sense that when I go to Home Depot or I go onto a university campus or I go to Walmart, anywhere where there's a lot of Americans, I just feel so bad because I feel that all the appurtenances that they're taking for granted, they have no idea uh, who died on Iwo Jima, who was blown up in a B-17, who was killed at Bella Wood, who died at um, Antietam for all of that. And then when you, it's a force multiplier, when you see on a campus that it's not just they're ignorant, but they're arrogant and they hate their past that gave them all this. They should all have to go to the Hoover Dam and camp out and just stare at it for two days and think, this is what made Las Vegas. This is what made Phoenix. This is what made LA possible. Yeah. And they don't, they never do that. They only look at the negative. And then the second half of that critique is, then you say, okay, now you made the critique against your parents and grandparents and great grandparents' generation, homophobic, racist, xenophobic, nativist, sex. We, we've heard it all a thousand times. Now, what about you? What did you produce? Oh, you produce high-speed rail in California. Not. Oh, you built a big reservoir in 1990. No. Uh, you built those uh, penstocks that went over the grapevine? No. Oh, you enlarged I-5, three lanes each way so people wouldn't get killed? No. You solved the 99 problem. Now it's six lanes for the whole thing? No. What did they do? Oh, you made the greatest school system in the world out of the LA uh, school system? No. So what did they do? What did they do? They didn't Nothing. do a damn thing. Nothing. Gavin Newsom is iconic of that whole attitude. He's, yeah. he's ignorant. He hasn't done anything. And yet he's so hypercritical. Yeah. He said the other day about DeSantis, you know, free California freedom. <laughs> it's like I thought this is like a guy who has a restaurant and the food is so terrible. Everybody goes across the street to this less spectacular but really well-run restaurant that it doesn't have the natural view of the the bad restaurant and they're leaving it in droves and this guy in the in the abandoned <laughs> restaurant gets out in a megaphone and says see you don't want to go over there it's horrible come here look what i've done well he drove everybody out he's driving everybody out he ruined the school they ruined the transportation system they ruined the water storage system it's criminal there's homeless there's highest taxes and the less yeah. services and he's bragging about it yeah i kind of admire right. him in a way he was like one of those disney cartoon characters or maybe one of those you know that is so arrogant and stupid but uh you know he kind of yosemite sam yosemite, yosemite sam, sam. Or he's, he reminds me of wiley coyote too he thinks he's so <laughs> smart and and desantis is kind of like roadrunner beep beep see you <laughs> <laughs> this is the free state of Florida. We make freeways. We just have no taxes and everybody wants to come beep, beep. <laughs> and he's going, I, I'm going to get this guy. I'm going to run a commercial. And it's pathetic. Yeah. That, All right. Okay. Let's take a break, Victor, and come back after these messages to talk about Saudi Arabia. 
Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. We're back and Saudi Arabia is our last um, topic today. And I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but I, I thought Saudi Arabia um, in addition to Japan, because I felt like we've we talked about the Middle East, we've talked about Israel, Iran, and we've mentioned Saudi Arabia. And we know, or most people know, that they have ex- exorbitant amount of oil reserves in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but we've never really talked about them as their, you know, their own interests. And I have a couple of questions on Saudi, and we know that President. Biden is going to Saudi Arabia to ask for oil. At least that's what all the newspapers are saying. So he'll perhaps already have been there by the time this is podcast. This podcast is published. But I, I was two things about the Saudis. Their um, unique relation with the Bush family. I, I would like to hear what exactly was that because I, I never had have had really a clear explanation. And also, what are the Saudis' political interests in the Middle East? And I, and that, knowing that we've talked about Israel's political interests and um, Iran's political interests, where do the Saudis stand and all that? So whichever way you want to go, we'd like to hear. Oh, you know, they were in the uh, 1980s. There was that phrase, what was it? House of Saud, House of... There was a book called that, House of Saud, House of... Bush, yeah, I think that, it was... It was about the relationship between the Saudi royal family. And it was so character because the Bush, you know, George H.W. Bush was not terribly successful, but he was an oil uh, man from Texas. So the the criticism was that the Bush family, the Texas Bush family cared about oil and they saw them and they were right wing and they saw the Saudis as becoming wealthy and they had this commonality of interest. And then there was a number of people uh, in the Bush, what's that, the, the Bush satellite sphere that were in that so-called Carlisle group. Was that the name of it? Yeah. And that was a, I think it was run by, oh, Frank, remember this guy, Frank Carlucci and Darman, and I think even James Baker, I think still alive. And anyway, they would they would go in and out of government and then they would have these financial consortia. And so when the very elite uh, left government, even though they didn't know much about finance in comparison to the Wall Street hawks, 
they were the point men that used their political ties in the Middle East and went over there and said, you know what, you're not getting enough investment uh, return. Put it in the United States and we'll get you seven or eight or nine. And they did. And they got big cuts and they became fabulously rich. The Saudis did very well. And then they pass it off by saying uh, they're so invested in the United States. We we benefit from the investment true. We being the Americans, not just them. Yeah. And then two, they're beholden to us. So next time they would kind of wink and nod. Next time they cut the oil off, we're going to, you know, they don't want to go too far because they'll end up like Iran with huge financial holdings that have been expropriated or put on ice by the United States. So the idea was, I don't want to call it grifting, but doing very well by translating political uh, experience while in office in the Middle East with a commonality of interest, passing it off as a win-win situation for the American people. Uh, it was a way of saying, well, we just incidentally just sort of kind of got became multi-multi-millionaires in the process. So that was a Bush's, uh, the critique against the Bush family. But the second thing was um, we never really got over the psychological trauma of the 1973 oil embargo. Anybody lived through that, the lines. I remember my poor father had got a no good Oldsmobile diesel and he had these diesel tanks, gas cans that he put five, five per gallon. He had them in the trunk and, and then he would kind of delegate us to go out and get in line with one of the cars. I think each of us took a car to get in line. And, and then that happened again with the Iranian 7980 crisis. So we weren't very vulnerable. But that whole paradigm and Saudi Arabia sort of chuckled. And then it, and then the no blood for oil uh, Middle East wars, that was what the left called the first Iraq war. Remember in the second Iraq war, we were only there. And people would say, well, if they didn't have any oil, have we gone in to save Jordan or Yemen? And why is it just Saudi Arabia and Kuwait? And there was some argument. There was, you know, there was an argument for that. But what I don't get is this. This is what I'm leading to. We're not beholden to the Middle East anymore. We pump 13 million barrels of oil a day. We're the largest, I think we're, well, we may not be after Biden got through with us, but we could be the largest natural gas producer as well. I think we're second or third in the world after Russia and China and coal. So, and we were the once at one time, the, the greatest innovator of nuclear technology. But the point was we're an energy powerhouse. So we don't need to go over now to Saudi Arabia and say, Notice what I'm saying. We don't need to, but we are because that yeah. where your question's going. What in the hell is Joe Biden doing over there? You know, begging for oil. Yes. Yeah, and <laughs> doing uh, Solomon BS. You know, the the Saudi de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. So why is he begging him to pump oil, and why is he so dependent on Saudi Arabia when the whole purpose of the Trump economic plan was to have leverage with everybody by being you know, energy independent. And it was just a win, 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 win situation. We pumped our own oil that we used and we set the price to a certain extent. We weren't so beholden to world prices. We weakened Russia, which was good. We weakened Saudi Arabia by pouring oil on the market. We could do it environmentally more more cleanly and more responsibly than these other countries could. And we provided a 
dependable source of fuel for the American military and the American people. And we didn't have to go with Middle East and optional ground wars. It was a win. And Biden comes along as a leftist and says, I don't like that. So I'm going to cut back and I'm going to jawbone lenders and I'm going to cancel the help frackers and I'm going to cancel pipelines. I'm going to cancel Anwar. And they said, well, we were slated to go up to another million barrels every year and you're going to stop that. We were down and he not only stopped the growth, he cut back by two million barrels in a very fragile market that was recovering from COVID. So then we end up begging Venezuela. We begged Iran. We begged Russia before they went into Ukraine. And now we're begging, you know, the Saudis. Yeah. We're we're begging SBS. We're saying, you know, please, please help us. And they have a big smile on their face and say, now, wait a minute, you're Joe Biden. And when we got rid of that so-called journalist that he was, you know, Khashoggi, son of the great, our nephew, the great arms merchant, we chopped him up. You guys uh, played sanctimonious with us. And, you know, we every once in a while, we chop people up. But that was part of the deal. And all of a sudden, you went public on us and said that we killed a quote unquote journalist. OK, so we're we don't get along with each other. And now we do get along with each other. You're coming all the way over here to beg us. And, you know, there's all these rumors that he doesn't pick up the phone when Biden calls. Yeah. So Biden better figure out what he wants from Saudi Arabia. Does he want to criticize their human rights record and their use of systemic violence against their political opponents? Does he want to say as bad as they are, they're preferable to ISIS and the terrorist alternative? Does he want to say... You can hate them all you want, but under the Abrams Accords, they have made a de facto realistic alliance with Israel, as have other countries like Jordan and Egypt. And that is a very valuable foil against an expansionist, dangerous terrorist, Iran. And to top it off, uh, whether they pump oil or not has a lot to do with the security of China and Russia, financial or fuel wise. Because yeah. if they can put, they were in a fuel war with Russia during the COVID lockdown. They almost broke Russia by not cutting back when the market didn't need the oil. Yeah. So you you've kind of explained Saudi Arabia's political position. I mean, it's allied with Jordan and Israel and Iran seems to be the enemy of just about everybody in the Middle East. How does Iraq work into the Saudi relationship? Are they friends now or what's their? They were. Remember that they were ambiguous about. They were not ambiguous about the 91 war. They had lost their friend Kuwait. And remember that there was a, a fleeting moment when Saddam's forces were headed towards Saudi Arabia and they were stopped for a day. And they could have gone into Saudi like nothing. And they would have if that once they had consolidated her. So they wanted they wanted Saddam out, out mm-hmm. of, yeah. but not out, out of their countries. Yeah. And they didn't he didn't make it into Saudi, but he wanted them out of Kuwait. For the principle that you you know an oil rich weak weak weakly protected uh, kingdom shall not be expropriated as a colony of Iraq. That said, they're not stupid. So they looked at the geostrategic situation and they said, you know, what are you Americans doing? This crazy Saddam Hussein is a Sunni and he's in a country of Shia majorities, and he's fighting our arch enemy, the damn Persian Iranians, and they've killed each other off for 600,000 people. And they've gone at it for years. 
And why would you get rid of him? What you want to do is emasculate him so that he can't, he has just enough power to keep the Shia in his own country down and the Iranians out, but he doesn't have enough power to go after his Sunni or rich neighbors. And that's why we don't want you to remove him. So the Bushes, that was the, the critique against the Bushes that they had this, uh, this relationships that we just talked about. So they, you know, George H.W. Bush and Colin Powell and Dick Cheney and all of them didn't go to Baghdad. And they had the, you know, the highway of death and they stopped. They could have removed him very easily. And so George Bush did not go into Baghdad after the highway of death uh, slaughter. He could have. And the complaint against that Bush, Cheney, Colin Powell decision was that they uh, had financial interest or they were too beholden or they were too obsequious to the Saudis. And their argument was, as Kissinger said, it's too bad they both can't lose Iran and Iraq. So they said in a geostrategic method that the method was that Saudis, Kuwaitis wanted a Sunni dictatorship to direct its attention to keep this Shia in that country down so the Shia in their own country did not revolt. And two, that he was secular, Saddam, so he wasn't an Islamicist. And they were the uh, custodians of Mecca and Medina. They didn't want to stir up the hard right, fanatical terrorist bin Laden swords. This is before 9-11. And he would check Iran. So we made that decision to bow to the Saudis. And then we discovered in the ensuing decade that, you know, he gave bounties to the suicide bombers on the West Bank. He was harboring Abu Nadal. He was harboring uh, the bomber of the First World Trade Center. He was exterminating the Kurds. He was exterminating the Marsh Arabs. He violated the no-fly zones. He violated the 91 Accords. There was 23 writs. And I think that was the greatest error of the Bush administration. I wrote very passionately about it, that if you want to take him out, then go by the U.S. Congress's uh, declarations. And they gave you 23 reasons. Only three or four of them were connected with WMD. But they thought they were too theoretical, too murky, and they fixated on WMD. We don't know what happened to it, where, whether it was there, where it was taken to Syria. But the point was that collapsed as a... Uh, Casas belly collapsed and they were left once the war went south, they were left with an insufficient cause, even though the Congress with a large number of Democrats in the Senate and the House had voted to authorize the use of force on 23 counts. And I don't know why they did that. But by 2006, we were at Oh, George Bush uh, went in there to save the Saudis and get oil. And now, and then this guy named Trump comes along, looks at that whole thing. And I thought a demagogic fashion said that George Bush should be impeached George w. for going in the war. It was the stupidest move, all that stuff. OK, but what was Trump's anecdote to all that? Trump said three things. We're going to pump like you never pumped before. We're going to have federal leases. We're going to have pipelines. We're going to have Anwar. We're going to tell those banks to give those frack. We're going to just flood the world. We're going to crash the Russian price. We're going to crash the Middle East. But we don't need any. Let the EU beg them for oil. We're not going to beg anybody for oil. We're going to get rich. 
with our own oil, okay? Number two, and we are not going to go into the Middle East. We have an independent foreign policy. We'll get along better with Saudis when they beg us and we don't beg them. Same thing with Kuwaitis, because we have the power, we have the oil. We're a we're stronger than OPEC. We've got more. We're, we would if we were in the OPEC, we'd be the strongest member, and we've got this huge defense force. So we're strong, and we're not going to ever go in there on the ground again and get a bunch of kids from red state rural America killed for a bicoastal that you know project. And that was number two. And then number three, he had leverage over the Chinese and, and EU because he was saying to the world. The EU needs 40% of their oil's got to come out of the Middle East. Got it. We are protecting the sea lanes, the Strait of Hormuz, the Persian Gulf. So listen, you European countries, you better start fracking or you better start doing something with nuclear or do something. If you want to go electric, whatever it is, but you are very, very vulnerable because you've got tankers strung out everywhere all the way to uh, Saudi and Libya and the North uh, Mediterranean, and you don't have any Navy. You can't protect it. And we're doing your uh, protection work for you. And he said to the Chinese, you've got about 25, 30% of your oil. And we're protecting your lines. And you know what? You've got, you supply 50%, 60% of the goods, of the material goods to the Middle East. You've got huge markets there. So you better be nice to us because you know what? If we were to vacate, maybe there would be, it would be a little bit difficult for you to, because you don't have a blue water Navy. And that was the point that Trump was trying to do. Yeah. That in our self-interest not to have an optional war, to put the onus on the Chinese and then to tell our allies, you better start getting in the real world because you have no idea how vulnerable you are on the Middle East and Russia. And we're going to be independent. If you people are going to be vulnerable in the Middle East, fine. We might even take advantage of it, but we're never going to be vulnerable in the Middle East again. And then sure. the, left, the left should have said, gosh, thank you, Donald Trump. We hated those wars and you've ensured they'll never happen. And we don't have to deal with illiberal regimes anymore. And that they didn't, they hated them. No, and they seem to be going back into that unhealthy relationship well, with the... Saudis. Where, where are they? Yeah, where are they talking? Yeah, where are all the liberal voices that said that Donald Trump was a monster, a monster? And where are all the never Trumpers who said that when uh, S uh, K B S, whatever his name, K B S, I should I said S B M M B S M B S Muhammad bin Salman, yeah, Salman, Muhammad bin Salman. Yeah. So when MBS had the guy chopped up Khashoggi and they were so outraged, well, why aren't they criticizing Biden right now for going over and and begging Mohammed bin Salman to pump oil? Yeah, they're not. They're not saying a word because, you know, they, they never had a principle about human rights. It was just they hated Donald Trump. They said it was over human rights. But if it was really over human rights, they would be outraged right now that what Biden's doing, because you could say that. Trump palled around with him, but he didn't he wasn't dependent on him and he didn't beg him. Yeah. Biden's humiliating himself in the country by begging this guy for oil. And he's begging it because he's adopted these stupid policies that he won't change. So mm. this is what people need to wake up about the left wing green movement. They are the most selfish SOBs and they care about nobody but their stupid little esoteric theoretical ideas that 
fall on other people other than themselves. And they don't care about human rights. And so they will do whatever is necessary to keep in power. And right now, necessary is they've summed up the 2020 midterms along the following. These stupid SOB Americans, these dummies, these crazies, these clingers, these deplorables, these dregs, these chumps, these smelly people in Walmart, these toothless people, they care about oil prices and gassing up their car. Why they don't have a Tesla? They, you know, they're just fixated on their jet skis and Winnebago's and boats and cars and trucks. Okay, we get it. So we have to go get them oil or we're going to lose power. So we'll say and do anything. Drain the strategic petroleum reserve? Fine. Put it out in the world market, you know, unfungible and end up in China? Fine. Beg the Saudis, beg the Venezuelans, beg the Iranians, beg the Russians? Fine. Do anything to hold on for power. That's what they care about, not principle. Yeah. Victor, we're at the end of our time. Uh, thank you so much for your discussions. I violated the principle of a time limit. <laughs> it's okay. I just wanted to say something about that Iraq-Saudi relationship. It sounds to me like you're saying that they're probably a little leery of Iraq now that uh, Saddam Hussein is gone because they don't really quite know what Around. position, what, yeah, what, how they how they will be in position. They're with very, Iran. I don't want to drone on because we're going to leave, but they're very suspicious, scared, and rightfully so of the yeah. crackpot uh, Barack Obama, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, crazy nincompoop, disastrous foreign policy of creating deliberately and by intent a Sunni crescent, I mean, a Shia crescent from Tehran down through Lebanon, including Syria and Hezbollah, and with help from Hamas to the Mediterranean as a weight, a lever, a counterforce against the Sunnis in the Gulf. So then they say to each side, your creative tensions will keep the peace. And we sort of sympathize with the underdog poor Shia that have been manipulated as people of color and marginalized people have in the United States. And they're more revolutionary, so we have a nice little affinity with them. But we still respect you other people, and we've created a tension that will be helpful. That was what that was their foreign policy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Victor, thank you so much. Um, I'm sure me and your listeners are very happy with all of the wisdom of well, Japan we and Saudi Arabia. I know we went everywhere, so sorry about it. That was yeah. quite a huge agenda. Yeah. So thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you, everybody. All right. This is Victor Davis Hansen and Sammy Wink, and we're signing off. Hey there, it's Amanda Head, and I am thrilled to introduce to you my new exciting podcast, Furthermore, with Amanda Head, broadcasting weekly from sunny Los Angeles, California, and brought to you by the dynamic Just the News Podcast Network. On this fresh and engaging podcast, I delve into the latest news with a little bit of a twist, exploring the furthermore of every story. But this isn't your typical run-of-the-mill news commentary or politically charged program. I interview a diverse range of guests, including business leaders, entertainers, musicians, educators, experts, politicians, and many influential figures from both the United States and around the world. So why not make your Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays a little more interesting? Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey.